Welcome, everyone. I'm Andrew Duckworth, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our fourth episode from our second podcast series on the COVID-19 pandemic entitled COVID-19, The New Normal and How to Get There. As some countries are just sadly going through the peak of the pandemic, others are trying to determine the best way forward as we move out of lockdown. However, without doubt, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to weigh heavily over all our healthcare systems across the world. Through this second series of podcasts, we have and will continue to reflect on what has happened so far as a consequence of the pandemic for us in our specialty, as well as on our healthcare system as a whole. We've already heard from a range of colleagues and specialties and how we may move forward as we start to consider restarting or increasing our orthopedic services around the country. And we've recently discussed the current state of orthopedic research with regards to COVID with Professor Matt Costa. There are without doubt several questions and unknowns, which we'll discuss in more detail today with our guest regarding hospital capacities and pathways patient safety and prioritization, as well as informed consent in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by the immediate past president of the BOA, Professor Phil Turner, who I know will not only be able to give us an exceptional overview into the effects of the pandemic on our specialty so far, but will also be able to give us some key insights on the recently released guidelines from the BOA entitled Restarting Non-Urgent Trauma and Orthopedic Care, and how we may try and return to some form of normality in these unusual times. Many thanks for joining us today, Prof. We really appreciate your time. Hey, thank you. So, Prof, if we, we start up in terms of, you know, it's now approaching two months since the UK went into lockdown due to the pandemic, and a lot continues to develop and change, both in terms of our path through the peak of the virus so far, as well as our understanding of this pandemic and what it means for both us as a country, but also for our healthcare system and specialty. So as we have normally done so far in our series, uh, Prof, can I ask you what has been your experience of the pandemic over the past, past few months and what do you feel we've, we've learned over that time? Uh, so most of my time has been spent doing remote cleaning. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever been busier. It's also given me a real understanding of the issues that face the specialties, uh, particularly the anaesthetists and intensivists. And this has led to much stronger collaboration with other specialties across our unit. But I think the other aspect is that it's given me the opportunity to work with other teams to essentially fashion a whole new concept of care for musculoskeletal conditions in these new circumstances, spreading right the way from self-care in the community, primary care, good pathways of management, hopefully safe and ultimately efficient secondary care, whilst at the same time ensuring uninterrupted emergency and urgent care, mm-hmm. and then moving on to how to establish remote rehabilitation and follow-up yeah no absolutely profits i think it has its like we've, we've said before on our podcast it's sort of a although through these difficult times often you can find a way to to move forward and try and take some positives from it i think that's right in terms of the guidelines though profit we come on to those obviously you know the guidance highlights um that we should be reviewing and expanding the provision of care for all urgent services and this should take precedence over starting non-urgent surgery at the moment how, how do you feel overall we're going to do this and how well positioned do you feel we are to move move forward with this currently? Right, thanks, Andrew. The, it's a, a difficult, difficult balancing act, isn't it? The, yeah. First of all, I'd just like to say that we, we have framed our document as guidance and not guidelines so that we can be flexible ultimately and take on board new evidence as it comes uh, and new guidelines that do come centrally. So we realise as this has to be a, a document which is going to change as we get more evidence about the best way forward. Firstly, uh, as far as trauma is concerned, we're, we're not been, we've not been practising disaster medicine. We, 
should still be able to manage trauma appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, and as the lockdown has eased a little bit in England, uh, certainly from my experience attending the trauma meetings, the trauma is going up. So we're already starting to see more trauma come through. Absolutely. And I think what, what I've noticed as well, the early senior input into decision making and seven day services have also really supported that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing that you really notice is the time required to manage these patients and the assumption that they're all COVID positive. Yeah. So the first thing I think that's key to this in moving on is prioritisation. So the joint colleges and NHSE produce the document on prioritisation, which gives an outline of the categories of uh, patients we should be thinking of, the 1A, 1B to the category 4. And I think even in the difficult times we've had, we're still managing to cope with the tumours, the infections, actual or impending periprosthetic fractures. This type of service has continued. Mm -hmm. But now we should be starting to think about the level two and ultimately the level three patients. Mm -hmm. So we, to, to start this, you really have to review your waiting list and classify and prioritise those patients. And you need to, you, you really need to speak to the patients mm. uh, because their uh, idea of what they want from treatment will have changed. Uh, and certainly it's my experience and experience from elsewhere in the UK uh, that many patients will no longer want the surgery they've been listed for. Yeah. And another group of patients want to delay until maybe uh, it's safer to go ahead. And they shouldn't be disadvantaged by simply being removed from waiting lists. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Prof. In terms of the in terms of the other guidelines that are out there, Prof, we'll come to a bit later though, do you think, in t you know, we talk about obviously our anesthetic and intensive care colleagues and we've, we've had a podcast with um, Kathleen Ferguson, the president of the AOA on this, do you feel that the, the those services are are ready to restart these things as well at the moment? What's your feel for that um, so far? Yeah, I think it varies from region for each to region. I, I work in the northwest where we've been badly hit, and we're not as far down the slope as London may be. So mm -hmm. certainly from where I am discussing it with our anaesthetists and intensivists, this is some way off. Yeah, we can really develop those services. Um, again, where I work, we've got 700 staff are shielding or are isolating. And when you do want to start doing this type, providing this type of service again, you need increased numbers of nursing staff and you need the most experienced staff. Yeah, so no. that's going to be a real challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think with, with PPE, again, things are getting better for what we're doing now but whether the supply can cope with the increase that you need when you're going to start up on doing more planned surgery is, is an, another matter. Sure. sure. Even just thinking about bed capacity, for example, if you, you, you really need at all possible to have single rooms or four-bed side wards, you're probably going to only be able to get two patients in those to keep the distancing you require. Mm. Uh, so... I think we really do have to start thinking now about developing those green COVID-free pathways, but I think we, it's still early in terms of capacity. Capacity Absolutely. is going to be key. Absolutely, Prof. No, I agree. So you just touched on it but there. In terms of the, the guidance, it describes establishing these COVID-free green or green, COVID -free and green pathways and COVID-managed or blue pathways. 
Can you just sort of expand on that for, for our listeners and how the categorization of those facilities will, will, will be done or is suggested to be done? Yeah, I think we've got a sort of plethora of colours, which has led to quite a bit of confusion, I think. Um, so that what we've stuck with as far as the BOA guidance is concerned is that green and blue are used basically to describe pathways. They don't really describe facilities particularly, but it's the pathway you want to achieve in the facilities you have. So a green pathway is one that is as COVID-free as you can possibly make it. And I think we have to accept that you can never make it 100% guaranteed COVID-free. Mm. It's always going to be a risk. Uh, so we could come to the plan of how you manage that perhaps later in terms of in individual patient uh, experience of mm. that. Uh, but you need your pre-op assessment, 14 days isolation, antigen testing, 48 hours pre-surgery, uh, again, screening, surgery, early discharge. And the most dangerous period for these patients is immediately post-op. Uh, so I think that we really should be recommending 14 days isolation post-op as well so they don't uh, get contact. So you really need to avoid contact with any COVID risk on any pathway you have. Mm. Um, the bigger challenge still, I think, is developing a green team to operate your green pathway in terms of surgeons and all the other staff that are involved with it. Mm. Uh, and again, there's, there's no real clear evidence on the safest or best way to do this. So I think this is going to be difficult. Yeah. And as you're setting up your green pathway, you do have to remember that we, we're clearly you know, most interested in that patient uh, to staff and staff to patient transfer. But you have to remember, we also have to still guard against staff to staff and patient to patient infection. So you have to have really good infection prevention and control at the heart of everything we do. Mm. The blue pathway is essentially anything else. So this is where you have to manage uh, your COVID risk. The other colours that we mention in the uh, document are gold, silver and bronze. And these really come from some work being done in London. Um, and uh, these are essentially a way of trying to describe your facilities of what you have. So they vary from the gold level being a standalone hospital that's completely separate from all of the healthcare facilities with completely cohorted staff. Mm. Uh, and that is probably your ideal situation. But that's not going to be everyone by a long, long way. No, uh, so we have to also in, give advice here at the silver and bronze level as to how a district general hospital may be able to achieve that complete separation of pathways and facilities. No, absolutely. And I think, I think it's interesting, like you say, the two things that sort of shout out to me there is in terms of there's going to be a great regional variation there in our ability to produce that. Uh, but also our ability to have um, COVID green and COVID blue pathways for our staff with so many um, uh, surgeons around the country having both trauma and elective practice, it's going to be quite quite a challenge that, do you not think? Yes, it, it certainly is. And it's going to need uh, to think about whole new, whole new ways of working. Mm. And I think the pandemic will be a, a driver to change how we provide uh, elective care. And I think perhaps we should change it to planned or scheduled care as a way of describing it. Yeah, uh, because elective care still has this sort of uh, sound to it as though it's sort of optional 
these are patients who are really struggling. So I, th- I think planned and scheduled is the way we should describe it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and we do have the, the GERF methodology there to help us to try and drive best practice. And key to this at, at regional level is going to be development further of those hot, cold, split sites. Um, and it, that will make it easier also to achieve the blue-green split. And we've got to bear in mind that it's not just orthopaedic surgeons that want green pathways. All the other surgical specialties equally want green pathways to be sure that not operating on patients who are going to develop COVID in the post-op period. Yeah. So I think these changes will be some way off. They'll require very strong leadership at the regional level to achieve it. But this is an opportunity to try and change. I agree, Prof. And if we just delve into that a bit more, if we took, if we move on to sort of just focusing on the planned surgery, you know, the, the sort of guidance states that we need to consider how non-urgent elective care will in due course be delivered, and like we've discussed, and obviously there'll be these regional discussions and decision making required. Is there any advice on sort of the referral and the prioritisation of those of those planned patients at all? Yeah. So the the. While we've been in the present uh, phase of, of the pandemic, many of the referrals have just stopped, um, mm. either by design or just patients have wanted to keep away. Yeah, They've not gone away, they're still there. So we've really had to have two streams in place. Uh, you have to have one that continues with a clear pathway in for those patients with red flags for infection, tumours, you know, severe sciatica, perhaps with neurological progression. Uh, and then other pathway for those non-urgent problems, uh, but so that we get some idea of what the demand is going to be. And those still need to be triaged either by your enhanced role practitioners or by another senior decision maker who can make sure that flow is is still going through. Uh, but you really your prioritisation needs to be at two levels when you're starting to think about uh, starting to, to tackle the, the Category 3s and maybe the Category 4s. Mm. First of all, get your prioritisation on the level of, is it a time-critical condition? Uh, but the other absolute key is the individual risk of yeah. that patient based on their age and their comorbidities. Mm. And this, the, the, We have no clear scoring system yet to try and decide what is the right way to go? And although the patients who are in category three, who may be sick patients as well, in normal circumstances, you would want to get on and get going with your um, elective work. Realistically, you're probably going to be safer testing out your pathways on those patients who are younger and fitter sure. uh, to be sure that you have a system which is safe. No, I think that's exactly. I mean, that's something we've actually thought about here in terms of actually the the the, the lower risk patients are often those elective day case patients or planned day case patients, and you you, you think there would be with their lower risk associated with a catching it and b the consequences of COVID. It probably is the safer way to go in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, um, certainly, our thoughts, Andrew. That's the way we're we're going to go. Absolutely. In terms of if we move on to that, then Prof, you know. For the elective patients, obviously, they, this aim is to manage them at these these green sites in in in, in, a, in a gold um, centre or facility centre, um, uh, as discussed in the guideline. But what will what will be the key sort of infection and uh, prevention, infection prevention and control measures for planned surgery at these sites? Considering, I suppose, the two things: the, the patients, as you, we've already talked about, but also the staff as well. 
Yeah, so for, from the patient point of view, I think we've already sort of alluded to it that you, you need to first of all select the right patient for surgery mm. uh, with a careful pre-op assessment, but also consent. And I think this is going to be uh, a complete change from how we've uh, obtained consent before. And there has to be a realistic discussion of the risks, particularly to older age groups who are undergoing reasonably major surgery of arthroplasty or revision arthroplasty, uh, of what may happen if they develop COVID in the post-operative period. So you certainly would reassure them with the pathways developed, this is as safe as possible. But if it should occur, then uh, all the evidence would point to it still being very high risk. So I think we're all sort of horrified really by the results that came from China where they inadvertently operated on patients who were COVID positive and were looking at an overall sort of 20-25% mortality rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the COVID surge figures from uh, across the world and more recently again across all specialties show it's actually pretty much the same. It sounds as though those figures were, were accurate. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so very difficult. Uh, in terms of next steps, then I think it does have to be that 14 days isolation. And that will be a big ask because you have to imagine what it would be like in terms of trying to cut down contact with other family members who may have to go out to work. Um, and how do you separate from them? So it's going to be a challenge. Uh, we need good and accurate testing at 48 hours pre-op, but preferably not coming into hospital for it. For it, yeah. So um, then there are concerns about self-administered tests and how accurate those are and whether we have a system in place for community testing. So there's still work to be done. Then mm-hmm. on about admission, the usual screening that needs to go ahead at that time, surgery itself, enhanced recovery protocols, early discharge as quickly as possible, 14 days isolation and then remote self-guided rehabilitation and follow-up to avoid coming back to hospital if at all possible. Mm -hmm. As far as staff's concerned, I think this is a a really big challenge for your average district general hospital. Uh, And there's no really good evidence-based answer to this, but I think you really need to avoid swapping green-blue in the same day, Mm -hmm. preferably doing blocks of a week. Um, one site or the other we're uncertain of the role of testing in this situation and and how accurate that will be Uh, but certainly daily screening to go through the questions and temperature checks absolutely vital and then eventually if we get a quicker uh, more quickly responding test and particularly antibody tests then we may be able to move on a little bit further but present I think it is going to be quite difficult. Uh, no, absolutely. And as, as you described, Prof, that's, that's a huge amount of sort of infrastructure and, and planning required to that. But something which uh, I thought I think you've already mentioned already, which I think is really interesting, is obviously the patient perspective for this. Because do you do you get a feel um, already? And you, you've alluded to you mentioned it already. I know, but you know, how are patients going to perceive surgery now? And 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 how are we going to inform consent them uh, appropriately in the new era with with really so little data i mean with, as you described there's some data coming through already but it's going to be a, a difficult time really for both us in, in providing them with the necessary information but also not really knowing do all these patients still still want their operations it's difficult isn't it 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Andrew. And I think from the conversations we've had or I've had with patients, they really want to avoid coming in for surgery as it stands at present unless they absolutely have to. Mm. And uh, I think a lot of the images that we've seen, you know, through the media early on in this, uh, quite rightly, were there realistically to demonstrate, you know, just how bad this problem can be if the NHS uh, gets overwhelmed. But mm. we, we sort of have to change the message to some extent, I think, now. Yeah. Um, and that patients should feel that they can come to the NHS and for orthopaedic surgery when they need it. But it's going to take some time to get that reassurance in place. Yeah. The problem with consent is that we, you know, normally we have sort of figures that we can give. We can say what your post-op infection rate's likely to be if you have a knee or a hip replacement. And you can even tailor it to some extent to your individual patient. You can give some idea of what the VTE risk is and what that may mean for the patient. But here, we, we still are very uncertain and uh, hopefully time will tell. I think the key thing that comes out of that is that when we do get started with any of this uh, planned work is to carefully audit what happens and what where we go with it. Yeah. Um, I think we, we, we cannot be flying blind into this. We really have to record what the hour outcomes are very accurately. Uh-huh. Uh, and again, be part of one of the, the audits. COVID surge, for example, would, would be ideal. Definitely, definitely, no. And if, if just moving forward, Prof, if we think to the to the future um, in terms of, I suppose my first question just before we go on to the final one, the ultimate question, I suppose, is, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I've heard a few people say this, there's a lot of guidelines out there. There's obviously RBOA guidelines. We've talked about the anaesthetic intensivist guidelines. There's the new guidance from NHS England. How, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming in some ways how how do you feel that they all merge together and do you think you're just going to take a take all that information and just take a region-based approach how, how how would you advise our listeners for that yeah i think firstly about more not particularly by design but just by really looking at what's necessary those three documents really come up with the same advice okay. so they're not conflicting in any way, which is clearly a good thing. Mm. The bottom line, I think, for all of them is be cautious. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a time for caution, not not for getting carried away. And it is going to take some time, I think, to, to really get started with anything approaching what we think of as, as being proper uh, planned surgical, surgical practice. Mm. There is wide variation across the regions. I, mean, I know down in the southwest, they've been... Uh, minimally hit really in terms of uh, their facilities so the the four s's from the uh yes. from the so probably are all going to be there in their green zones mm. and able to uh, be able to start certainly where i am and in the the northeast uh, this seems some way off and I, I i don't think we're we're anywhere close to it yet and i think what what we should be doing now really is is looking ahead to be able to plan it so we plan it properly, use the time that we have before we can really get things set up to make sure it's done correctly. Mm -hmm. So you need to really know what the demand is from that group of patients that we have on our waiting lists. You need to develop a team dedicated to recovery of those services in your local hospital and take your time to sort out that green pathway, really do the walkthrough of 
which door they're going to come in through when they're admitted to surgery. Where are they going to go? How do you keep away from the blue areas inside your hospital? Mm-hmm. Uh, ensure that you're safe and ready to go. Uh, absolutely vital with all the other people who are involved with this. Mm. Really has to be a very close team uh, approach to it. And on the bigger scale, just use this opportunity to start thinking about how you provide MSK services and particularly planned orthopaedic surgery on a bigger level. But again, I say audit your outcomes, audit your audit your outcomes. I think initially we're, we're looking at 50% productivity, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to f- finish, Prof, it's a, the difficult question. There is no <laughs> easy answer, I suppose. But do you have any feel, you know, from the discussions you've had, you've obviously uh, discussed with a lot of people who've been involved with this. How long do you think it will take? I think if we, if we avoid a second surge, or at least we get the feeling that the prevalence in community is down at reasonable levels, Mm. I think for most places to get to the level where you're doing your category four cases, I think it's going to be September or October of this Mm. year. Uh, I think sooner than that for most regions is unlikely to happen. That's interesting. And like you say, I think it's a, one of the th- it's a dynamic thing, isn't it? And we always have to be reflecting. And if we do get a sudden surge, we have to be able to adapt. We think, we think that's true. Yes, yeah, so you've got to be everything you put in place. You unfortunately have to be prepared to uh, to dismantle again. And I th- I think one of the one of the aspects of running through this, and it'll be I'm sure worth a podcast of its own, is the impact of these changes on training. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think this is going to be very, very difficult. It's going to be senior surgeons doing the operating. Uh, it needs to be speedy surgery, um, and just taking every opportunity for the trainees is just going to be so important. Yeah. We simulation into that and getting the most out of every operation a training does. No, I, I totally agree, Prof. Well. Well, I, I think that's all we have have time for. But thank you so much for your excellent overview and insights today, uh, Prof. That was really, really informative. And uh, I really thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks very much, Andrew. Enjoyed it. And finally, as ever, we'd like to acknowledge and thank our many colleagues around the UK and across the world for their tireless ongoing efforts over the past few difficult months and the delivery of care to our patients during this pandemic. We at The General always thank you and we'll continue to support you in every way we can moving forward. And stay safe and well. And thank you for listening.